Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. This latest episode was recorded as a video webinar in conjunction with the 2020 Virtual Irish Fly Fair, which has been organising talks and fly tying demos online in place of the usual fair in Galway that was postponed, of course, due to COVID. And I was joined this week by renowned fishery scientist Ken Whelan and well-known guide and instructor Jason Reardon from Game Fishing Ireland as they discussed what lies beneath the Loch Trout's underwater larder and how to imitate it. Just to note, Jason and Ken will be back for a follow-up session next week when they answer any questions you may have in relation to this topic. And so you can email them to info at lastcastmedia.com or submit your questions in the comments below on my Instagram page. So now back to the discussion and Ken began by explaining what trout feed on in locks over the course of the season. First of all, just to say how delighted we are to support Elaine and Stevie in this fantastic endeavour. I mean, you know, never, never to be uh, uh, put down. They've decided to uh, do a virtual fly fair, which I think is a fantastic idea. And as I say, we're delighted to support it. Um, we have a very short space of time, really. So um, what I want to do initially is just to show people the breadth and scale of what is available in terms of food in our lochs. Um, unfortunately, we don't have time to cover rivers as well, but we might do that in, in a future uh, webinar. But in terms of the locks of Ireland, um, really, if you break it down into the season, you'll see at the beginning and the end of the season, it kind of telescopes. So you get a smaller variety of food and therefore the fishing can be that bit easier. So if you start, say, in March time on a typical loch in the west of Ireland, you would find that fish are up on the stones. They're feeding on shrimp. They're feeding on the hog lice or water slaters, as we call them, and snails. And then from around mid-April to mid-May, then, what we're going to talk about this morning really takes over in terms of the buzzer and the lake olive. From mid-May to mid-June then, you still have your olives, you still have uh, some buzzer, but really the mayfly on many locks then takes over. You also have the fisherman's curse and what is then consistent throughout the rest of the summer, which are the sedges. And in mid-May to mid-June, at the beginning of the sedge hatches, it can be really productive because the fish really seem to gorge on them. So you get the great big sedges, the murrocks, and you get the smaller sedges, the Welshman's button. From mid-June to mid-July then, the fries tend to appear. And Jason will talk about this in a future webinar because fry and the next little creatures, which are up here on the right-hand side, the little planktonic Daphnia, they are particularly challenging. When you have fish feeding on fry or Daphnia, that's very difficult. So we're gonna avoid that today. Um, murrock and silverhorns then appear and you also have damselflies, which really can at times drive the, drive the fish mad because of the movement that they have. And then darting around in near the shore, you'll see the little water boatmen or the corixa. By the time you get to mid-July to the end of August, they then have a huge variety of food available to them. As a result of that, this can be a really difficult time to fish because the fish at any one time could be feeding on large green buzzer, they could switch then in the evenings to peters. They could see some murrocks about. They could see some brown sedges into dark. The bigger fry may be attracting them. They may be still on the damsels. And the appearance then of the daddy longlegs, which can be really important and is much underrated, I think. As well as that, from time to time, you can have falls of red and black ants. And of course, the fish can still be on Daphnia and Corixa. So that's why you see a lot of anglers have lost their hair because in reality, they've been fishing a lot from mid-July to the end of August, and it is really challenging time. September then is probably one of my favorite times to be out on our locks, because you start then to get a much 
a more concentrated um, amount of food available for the fish. Um, and what people tend to miss very often is the fact that we get a lot of daytime hatching sedges in September. And these daytime hatching sedges, very often it's the pupae, and we'll explain that in a moment, that the fish are actually feeding on, and not so much on the dry, on the dry sedges. I've been on Loch Ull, my brother, having a great day, catching fish on pupae, nothing on the surface to be seen at all, and anglers around, around us wondering what the hell we were catching the fish on. You then have the second batch of olives coming through, you have the buzzer coming through, and you still have the terrestrials. So overall, an absolute huge variety of animals that we could talk about. But today, we're going to really just make a start. And we've picked out three. We've picked out the buzzer, the lake olive, and of course, the sedges. And what I'll do is I'll very quickly talk a little bit about their biology, primarily about the movement and where you will find them in the water column. And then Jason will follow up then in terms of the imitations and the most important part, really, how do you imitate that movement? How do you actually get the fish then uh, to take and how do you entice them? So the buzzers then, uh, technically, they're known as coronamids or non-biting midges. And very often they lie as larvae in the bottom of the lochs. Uh, probably the most famous one are the red bloodworms. And these are larvae of one particular type of buzzer. So the larvae are present in the bed of the, uh, bed of the loch, as I say. And then when it's time for them to hatch, they then change into what we call pupae. And the pupae is the form whereby it actually um, swims to the surface of the water and then it hatches out. But a couple of features that are really important to the angler is the fact that inside what you see here, inside these skins, the actual body of the emerged insect is separating away from the skin. That means that there's a gap between the body of the animal and the skin. And as the fish, as the uh, uh, buzzer rather moves up through the water, the fish can see all sorts of different changes in color. And that's why we have lots and lots of different variety in terms of our buzzer patterns and why at a certain depth or at a certain speed, a certain color may work very effectively. And it's great fun being able to actually um, zone in on which particular colors or which color patterns or mixes actually work on your lock. When they get to the surface then, they hang on with these breathing tubes to the, to the surface tension. And they really lock on to the surface tension on the surface of the locks. And um, the thorax then, the little part behind the head splits. And then the adult insect then emerges, sits for a few seconds on the empty skin and away they go. So as anglers, what we're trying to do primarily is to imitate the buzzers and to imitate the adults. But again, we could also have a go at imitating the larvae. So I'll uh, switch over to Jason then in terms of talking a little bit about the different patterns and about how we imitate those different stages of the buzzer. Hi guys, it's good to be back uh, in a virtual context, obviously today, but it's nice to be back involved with the fly fair. Um, yeah, so as Ken said, I suppose if you look at the bottom right there, uh, the bloodworm, obviously in smaller lakes, particularly tends to be quite a popular pattern and the larger locks tends to be more buzzer fishing. Um, I suppose a, a few key points, color, as Ken said, can be something that fish will hone in on, but depth really is, is critical. Um, you know, buzzers can rise off the bottom and actually go back down and come back up. So uh, the idea of fishing a team of flies, so you're covering different depths, 
a floating line is typical. So unless you're maybe trying to fish buzzers in, in a wave, um, you might switch to a midge tip there just to keep in contact. The movement is really, really slow. The flies drift. So uh, what you're trying to do, in some instances, people will anchor up. Uh, sometimes you might use a drogue. But the idea is to fish these things dead slow, static. Mm -hmm. So on a big lock, you're going to be drifting on a small ripple and you're going to be using a figure of eight, not really even so much to move the flies, but just to keep in contact. So you're trying to match your retrieve to the speed of the boat. Sounds easy, but um, they're really, really top buzzer anglers that really love buzzer fish and have this uh, off to a tee. And because uh, the boat could be moving towards the fly and you're trying to judge this retrieve, spotting the takes can be really tricky as well. Some people fish... Um, with the rod tip really, really low to try and keep what we call a straight line. So keep the fly line dead straight from the tip of the rod to the fly so that you detect subtle takes. Uh, other people um, that I know fishing in carb like to keep the rod tip a little bit higher and they actually watch the little loop of line that, that drops from the tip of the rod down to the surface of the lake. Any movement or twitch, particularly any sideways movement, something that looks wrong, and they'll set the hook. So even from a beginner point of view, um, I would definitely say some of your key points are going to be floating line most of the time and fishing in the sheltered areas, calmer water, so that you can control what you're doing and what your, your fly is doing. Uh, so within, within reason, putting on a team of buzzers and pulling them really, really fast like you would with dabblers or wet flies it shouldn't work. Okay. It shouldn't work. Uh, then you have the emergers as Ken mentioned. So little small, uh, parachute type, little cul de canard, uh, flies, uh, good for that. And then obviously you, you may have the dries. Um, I'll come back to that in a second because I might get Ken just to mention a bit about the balling buzzer, but, um, certainly the other thing to watch with the big locks is the size. So at the start of the year, you have what's commonly referred to as the duck fly. And these are probably around a size 14 uh, in a hook size. So they're, they're, they're not that big. You might be fishing a 12. But then later on, as you go into May and you get the, the gray boy, as it's known, which is a much larger buzzer, you need to fish much larger size uh, flies. So it's a good idea to mix and match with your team. So you might fish quite a heavy buzzer on the point, a midweight buzzer in the middle, a lighter buzzer on your top dropper, slightly different color variations. And I would normally fish the one with the breeding filaments like you see in the top right there on the top dropper because that makes sense. Very simple thing, but I regularly see people fishing uh, three buzzers and they all look the same. So unless you're catching on one and you decide that that's really working today, so I'll put on more that look pretty much the same, I wouldn't start off with three that look uh, the same and sink at the same speed. So hopefully that helps. But Ken might come back in just a bit about the balling buzzer because uh, if you're lucky enough to get to conditions, that can be really good. Thank you very much indeed, Jason. Yeah, I should have mentioned that. Um, when you get the um, adult uh, buzzer coming back onto the water to lay their eggs, ovipositing, you can get huge concentrations of them coming together. 
and uh, they tend to concentrate in one particular area. As a result of that, you'll find that one female gets actually gnarled up in another, and you literally get a ball of these buzzers on the surface of the water, and it drives the fish absolutely berserk. It's actually relatively easy to imitate. Um, if you have a hook of maybe size 10 long shank hook with a very tightly tied buzzer hackle on it, it imitates this very well. Problem is, if you don't have one in your box, they can drive you berserk when they're, when they're taking the bowling buzzer, but they do take it with, with great confidence and it's a great time to be out. It's not often you're lucky enough to find a bowling buzzer um, feed going on on the surface of the water, but if you are, well worth watching out for that. So thanks, Jason. So that's the, uh, that's the buzzer. Um, the next uh, fly then that we're going to cover are the lake olives. Now, um, the lake olives, and these, these are both nymphs of river olives, but that doesn't really matter. The shape and everything is exactly the same. Um, the lake olives tend to hatch from late April right through until the middle of May, mainly around early May. If you're out on a loch and um, uh, you can see uh, well down into the water, if you look down, you'll see this very, very dense bed of weed that we call Cara or Stoneworth. And that is the fantastic, that's a fantastic home for the lake olive. And what you tend to find is that the lake olives are all over the strands of this particular cara weed. They're darting mayflies, they move very fast, um, they're very agile, and the fish will hunt them in the weed. But in addition to that, they really like them when they're beginning to come to the surface and just starting to hatch. So in terms of the actual structure that you're trying to imitate, if it's a mayfly, invariably it will have three tails it'll have very distinct segmentation, and it'll have this very big thorax here. And the thorax is just like, if you like, a parachute pack, in that what you have in here are the wings of the insect. And it's very clever the way nature has packed them, so that the biggest section of the wing is nearest the body, and each fold that comes out towards the actual dorsal surface of the insect, the actual amount of wing, of course, gets smaller and smaller and smaller right up to the tip. So when the thorax splits, just like the buzzer up at the surface layers of the ocean, of the uh, lake rather, when the thorax splits, the fly actually emerges and sits, as, I, as in the buzzer, sits on the skin for a second, dries its wings and then takes off. And this then is the adult that you will see um, uh, that will fly off and go into the trees. Um, the olives are part of a group that again in Latin are called ephemeroptera and they're ephemeral. So they have only, only have vestigial mouth parts. They don't actually feed as adults. So they last very, a very short space of time, two or three days at most. But when they get then to land, the skin splits again and um, the reproductive stage or spinner stage then emerges. And these can be really colorful, very often bright red, um, darkish blue bodies. Um, it depends which particular species, but they're very colorful. And when they come back and fall on the water, and um, ha have laid their eggs and died on the surface of the water. The actual spinners or the spent flies, again, can bring on a big, a big feed of trout. But really, it's at the stage when the nymphs are coming up to hatch, when they're just under the surface and hatching, when they're on the surface as duns, and when they come back as adults. That's really what you're attempting to imitate. And again, everything is down, particularly with the nymphs, is down to movement and location. So Jason, I'll hand it over to you then to talk a little bit about the uh, about the imitations. Yeah, again, you should at this stage be 
starting to make that connection between what Ken is saying and what the angler needs to do. So remember Ken said about the nymphs being agile. So whereas, say, with your buzzers, where we're trying to fish them static or you're dead slow or just keep in contact with your, your little figure of eight retrieve, these things can swim. So, you know, you're, you're, you, you've got to think of your retrieve. So you're looking at maybe a pull, a pull, and then a pause because it's a little sprint. And of course, they might get tired. So our figure of eight, figure of eight, then put a pull. So they're more erratic. So you have to replicate that. You can't just cast them and pull them all the time uh, in a sort of a standard wet fly fashion. Um, obviously, when they get near the surface, you can see why wet flies work. As Ken said, you're starting to break out of their shell. And if you have a wind and a wave, and again, think, you know, we wouldn't generally like to fish wet flies in calmer conditions. Uh, so you can see why wet flies would work just breaking on through the surface when you've got movement in the water. Uh, and obviously, if it's calmer and you start to see sailboats all around you, uh, as in the wings, these upright wings of the olives, uh, definitely um, you're getting into dry fly territory, but it can be quite tricky to figure out if the fish is taking the emerger or the adult, and it can switch. Uh, so again, if you're fishing more than one fly, so early in the hatch might be an idea to fish two dry flies, if you like, <clears throat> one uh, what we might call parachute style. Um, we don't have an image of it here, but but I'm sure you'd be familiar with maybe the likes of a clink hammer looking fly. So where the hackle is wound around the, the stalk that's sticking up like a wing. So to get it to sit like it's hatching in the surface film, uh, as opposed to say the bottom left hand fly there, which is going to sit up on top uh, and look more like an adult olive. The spinners, as Ken said, uh, can be good. And I think you might notice a difference between fishing the uh, olive hatch in the early season in April and fishing the olive hatch later on around September. I tend to find there's a sort of a, a window in April, often for an hour or two, maybe mid, midday to afternoon, when everything is, is all action. Whereas if you think towards September, you can see a bit more dribs and drabs. Uh, and I have seen uh, occasionally in September situations where you might still have olives hatching and you have spinners on the water as well. So that can make it quite tricky because you're trying to figure out which ones the trout are picking off. Um, so think of that, think of the, again, we're aiming this, I suppose, very much at beginners. So, so think of the movement of your nymph. Uh, also, do you fish something, say, with a gold bead on the point of a day to get the nymph down? Or are you going to fish just lighter patterns? And you have to think location is critical, as Ken said, where these shallow bays where the olives will be, that's the place to fish them. So, you know, think of those things. Um, and don't disregard wet flies uh, on, on the likes of your intermediate line when the conditions are suitable. And I'm sure Ken, Ken might come in there, the conditions for olive hatches um, aren't necessarily what you might expect for most types of hatches. Yeah, certainly in, in, in terms of the really big hatches, what you tend to find is that if you've, um, as Jason said, it's quite delicate fishing because you're fishing in relatively calm conditions. Very often you're fishing with a, just a good stiff little breeze, but very muggy. And what tends to happen then is the fish, the uh, um, insects will come off in sheets. 
you'll actually get sheets of olives that that will uh, that will emerge. And don't get too excited, I would advise, because at the end of the day, sit back for a minute and watch what the fish are doing. I have seen so many people fishing dry flies when the fish are on emergers. And again, it's so frustrating. And yet it's just a matter of watching the, the rise form and watching the behavior of the fish, particularly if you have this mass emergence of the, uh, of the olives. And very often the fishing is better when you're getting a good trickle of, of uh, olives coming off rather than a situation where you have this huge emergence of, uh, of olives coming off. And as I say, watch out for the cara. If you can see big, uh, big uh, beds of this very tightly packed, beautiful, crunchy looking weed, there's a lot of calcium in it, um, under the boat. And it's about maybe two to two and a half, maybe three meters deep. That's the area where you're going to get the olives. And if you drift out of that, my advice would be go straight back and fish that area again. You're not going to get these widespread all over the lake. Okay, let's move on then to our final, uh, our final insect then for this morning. And we're going to talk then about sedges. And these are by far my favorite because I tend to catch more fish on sedges, different forms of sedges over the season than anything else. So as larvae, after the eggs have been laid, there's two types of sedges. There's the free living sedge and then there's the, the guys and girls then that make the cases. Um, the free living sedges are predominantly in flowing water and you'll find these in big numbers in rivers. But where you have a reasonable river coming into a lock, very often you can actually have a transfer across and you can get these um, free living uh, larvae um, in the locks themselves. And these are very often imitated by Czech nymphs that you see anglers fishing, particularly competition anglers. But in reality, it's only from time to time that that's going to be the, the case. Difficult enough, I find, to imitate the actual cased caddis. Uh, certainly Jason has some very good tines for what he calls these, these little peeping caddis. Um, and at times it can be fun trying to fish them. But predominantly what you're looking at are these creatures. These are my favorite. These are the pupae. So what happens is, and it's easier to explain really with the cased guy. Um, so the insect then lives in the case for uh, the whole of the summer and say it's going to uh, hatch in the autumn time, eventually it realizes, just like uh, the chrysalis of, of a, a caterpillar, realizes that it's time to hatch. It goes back into the case and it seals off the front of the case and changes into this form here. It changes into the pupae inside the case. It then eats its way out through the seal that it has at the front of the case and then emerges up through the water. And the movement of this creature is absolutely vitally important in terms of the way it attracts fish. You can see the long uh, trailing antennae here. You can see the very bulky shape. And as I mentioned, and I, 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 um, I don't apologize for mentioning it again because it's so vitally important, very often fish will be feeding on pupae. They are difficult to actually see in any way if they're feeding on pupae. They can be a meter down, gorging themselves on these. And you can have brown and green as the best two colors for the pupae. And then as they come up towards the surface, if they're taking the pupae nearer the surface, you will see them as if they're, see the fish feeding on them as if they're taking very big chunky buzzer pupae. But keep an eye out in terms of what exactly they're doing. The sedges themselves can hatch in two ways. The adults can hatch out in the loch itself and then scutter across the surface. You'll see this with the peters and with the morocks. And again, it attracts the fish as the, as the insect actually 
if you like, walks or runs across the surface of the water. But then others swim into the shore and they'll actually emerge up the stems of leaves and so on. And then you get the adults coming back then to lay the eggs then um, at dusk. So the adult insects can be really important for night fishing uh, from late evening through dusk right into dark. So the sedges, as you saw in my list at the very beginning, they hatch all of the time from May right through, if your lock stays open even until the 12th of October, you'll find that the sedges can, can be present right through that period and are consistently an important diet, uh, item in the trout's diet. So Jason, I'll just turn over to you then in terms of the, uh, terms of the imitations. Yeah, uh, well, as Ken said, the larva, probably not as important to anglers, particularly on the larger lakes. You can catch fish. You need to fish them close to the bed of the lake and you've got to fish them quite slowly because they're crawling around down there. Um, it's something probably anglers try here and there, but not something that you would really be setting out to do that often. The pupa, on the other hand, definitely a key one for the angler, although missed by a lot of people. Uh, certainly, I would say, uh, from my point of view, when you're going into August, September, and you have sedges hatching throughout the day, that's that's when I really uh, like to try fishing the pupa. Um, one of the things, I suppose, is, you, you know, if you think of the hatch trickling away and then getting stronger and stronger as you go towards evening. So maybe fish two pupa, a weighted one on the point, a longish leader on a floating line. And these are quite, quite good swimmers as well. And those legs or paddles that they have, they use those to propel themselves through the water. And that's why sometimes you see this splashy rise at that time of year during the day or early evening. And people are saying, I wonder what they're taking. Can't see anything on the surface. That's because they're charging after the pupa. And that's what causes that, that splashy rise because they've got to attack it. And they will hatch in open water, as Ken said. So it's not just in around reed beds, especially at that time of year. So you fish your pupa. Then, of course, the hatch gets stronger. So what you might do there is shorten your leader, fish a dry sedge, like the one in the, in the bottom there. And what river anglers are very good at, a thing called a dry dropper. So a dry fly with uh, a nymph or pupa behind it. So in this case, you'd fish a dry sedge and you would suspend a pupa a couple of feet behind it. And that's where you really see when fish are taking the pupa and you still have the dry fly on the cast as well. Uh, often, you know, I, I, I see it, I'm guilty of it sometimes myself. You go out, you fish maybe a sedge and a daddy or two sedges. So you're fishing two dry sedges, whereas to fish a dry sedge and a pupa, you're covering two stages and you're covering two depths. Obviously, when you get into the main hatch, then later in the evening, it might make sense to go to two, two dry sedges. Uh, the shape, how flat they are, the, 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 that pattern in the bottom there in, in the image, you can see how flat it sits on the water. I think sometimes we're guilty with our dry sedges of having them sitting up too high and you tend to miss takes. So I know from fishing carob, uh, late August into September, there's a pattern called the chocolate drop, which is very popular. And again, the hackles at the front there, they tend to trim them when they're tied. People will trim them underneath so that the fly sits right down on the surface, really flat. Uh, so I'm not going to get into the nighttime um, sedge fishing. 
uh, I just said I talk about uh, uh, sedge fishing around that time of year during the day into the evening just to focus on the pupa because you know we did say it's what lies beneath um, so that's that's a few pointers anyway to watch out for and obviously the colors as Ken said greens and ambers wet flies are good for pupa just to say that uh, everybody at this stage I think seems to know about the green peter muddler for late season have a look at it have a look at the green peter muddler look back and we can just jump back a slide to that image of the pupa uh, in the top right bright green look at the bulky head on it um, the antennae the legs you can see where the deer hair there would give that shape that bulk um, the palmered hackle on the green peter so the green peter with the muddler um, deer hair on it I think about this our, our are trout taking that as a pupa when you when you look at the fly and look at look at the uh, look at a pupa and remember you're tended generally to pull this fast on a on maybe an intermediate line and we know that the pupa swim fast and that they're out in in open water so um you know it doesn't have to be a realistic imitation all the time it has to have the right silhouette the right shape and be moving in the right way Thanks, Jason. So, folks, um, that's it in terms of our three choices for today. Um, as Dara was mentioning, we'd be delighted to get your questions and your queries. And we'll be back on again then next week when we will go through the uh, questions with Dara. And we'll come back then and we'll answer those then next week. Ken and Jason, thanks a million. Um, absolutely loads of brilliant information in that for everyone. And like you said, it's probably very much kind of focused maybe towards the kind of beginner more, you know, just starting out. It gives them a great overview. Um, I know it can be a bit kind of confusing and uh, when you first start out kind of wondering where do you start and, and, and where do you go from there? Just actually, just before we wrap up, um, I know you guys, you know, obviously I'll just remind people again, just the comments below, send your questions in. We're going to monitor them, go through them, and we'll do a follow-up session next week in relation as to whether it's entomology with Ken or whether it's type of flies to use uh, with Jason. So, you know, yeah, do take this opportunity to send the questions in to the guys. Um, guys, obviously, just COVID's been a knock-on a knock and a lockdown for everybody, and it's obviously affected things in terms of courses and people out fishing. Looking ahead to 2021, uh, with I suppose maybe hopefully seeing a bit of light at the end of the tunnel, and are there plans for more courses for, for people to learn some more? Yeah, there certainly are. Um, we had no option this year, like everyone else, except to head for Zoom and try and teach ourselves how to use Zoom and that. So we ran a few uh, pilot webinars um, earlier this year. We were absolutely bowled over by the amount of interest um, we held them to relatively small numbers because we were sure we were going to make some really stupid mistakes with the technology. So we started with about 20 and uh, the first evening then we couldn't get the video to work. So we were, we were very happy we only had 20. Then we went to about 40 and we could, I think, have increased that many fold. So the webinars were great. And as I say, I got great feedback on that. So what we're looking at now is going forward, I think, 
um, a blended form of lear learning like a lot of other teachers. It's going to be much easier for us to run the courses on Zoom in terms of the theory component of it, where it's a very personal sort of feel for people. And then we can't wait to get back out then and start uh, running the actual field courses. And again, we have a big backlog of interest in relation to the, uh, to the field courses. But given that people are now so comfortable with the Zoom, we're also thinking that we'll be in a position as well to be able to give people um, advice in relation to pre-trip advice. We're often asked by people who are heading off to uh, fish maybe in England, maybe to Slovenia, maybe even if they have the money to New Zealand or whatever, what do I bring with me? How do I fish or whatever? And between Jason and I, we've fished a lot of these locations. So we're thinking as well, we can give people advice in relation to that. And then the uh, field courses that uh, I'm running and that Jason is now becoming involved with, uh, they're proving very popular as well. So we're, we certainly have lots of good intention, Dara, intentions at this stage, uh, but we're utterly dependent on, on obviously like everyone else in our resolution to the COVID situation. My thanks to Ken Whelan and Jason Reardon for joining me on the show and do check out irishflyfair.com for more talks and fly tying demos from this year's virtual fly fair. Jason and Ken will be back next week to answer any questions you may have in relation to the diet of the trout lock and the flies to catch them on so don't forget to send in your questions to info at lastcastmedia.com or via the comments on the Instagram page. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also keep up to date on IrelandOnTheFly.com as well as on Instagram and I'll be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland.